is insufficient. It's too little. Something more is needed. Geralt the Witcher is traveling when he has a chance encounter with a man in danger. However, the man called Yerga could flee easily, and as we later learn, his assistants have already done so. But he doesn't. Geralt immediately begins to explain how grave the danger to Yerga is. But as we all know, fear tends to impede one's judgment. That which could be judged rationally from a safe, detached distance lacks the perspective of the experience itself. What do we do when confronted with the truth we fear to face? That is the question for Yurga in this very moment. From the Witcher's POV, it's simple enough. Flee or die. And he's puzzled by Yurga's hesitancy. Geralt repeats that there's grave danger imminent, perhaps thinking that Yurga is so afraid that he can't move. Close, but not quite. While Geralt sees only the one danger, Yurga sees two, and those fears are in conflict. The thought of losing a year's worth of work, it's unbearable. He wasn't paralyzed by the fear of death, he was paralyzed by the fear of loss, of failure, of not providing for his family, willing to lose his life for something more. Yurga has enough clarity to realize that the Witcher is a Witcher, and offers him whatever he wants in exchange for saving him. And as we have seen before, that's quite an offer to make. And Geralt accepts upon condition he be paid according to the law of surprise. Yurga agrees quickly, but doesn't know what to make of Geralt seemingly getting mad at himself for even asking. The Witcher seems to immediately regret what he's done in claiming the law of surprise. And the reader may not know what to make of that either, because, well, what about Siri? No time to consider that now. A fight begins, though it's not exactly clear thanks to confusion and darkness. Geralt seems to have pulled off some of his best witchering yet, as it seems he defeats a very large number of... Well, that's not exactly clear either. Whatever they are, one of them seems to have bitten him on the leg, and that's very bad. Enough so that the witcher passes out after killing all of the creatures. The grateful Yurga, no longer in danger, becomes determined to save the man that saved him. Over the river and through the woods, to Yurga's house they go. But first, they need a healer. Geralt will express later that had he died on that bridge, it would have been a fittingly meaningless end. But Yurga disagrees, saying that dying to protect others is one of the best ways to die that there is. And death is always just over your shoulder. Geralt replies that it is hard to live with doubts, but Yurga again makes a strong point. Doubt. Only evil, sir, never has any. But no one can escape his destiny. Yurga has more insight than one might have first thought, certainly more than Geralt did. In addition to his respectable views on life, he was not fooled or hoodwinked by the law of surprise. Yurga understands that a child will be the price, but knows his wife is past her childbearing years, so he can't conceive of it being a baby. He also understands that one of his existing sons, he has two, might serve as a witcher instead, because dying to protect others is one of the best ways to die there is, and death is always just over your shoulder. You had in mind for a child to be a witcher's apprentice and nothing else, didn't you? Why does that child have to be unexpected? Can it not be expected? Yurga proves to be a man who takes the world as it is, that life always goes on and that suffering and loss will always be around the corner. But so are the reasons to live, to keep going. And he would know. He's a man of Sodden, a country where war with Nilfgaard was brought to an end over a year ago after much destruction. On the road, they pass signs of that war, and it can be noted that the monsters Gerald saved Jurga from are likely an indirect result of that destructive war. The creatures either came to feed on the corpses left by the war, or they are the corpses left by the war and warped and animated by some lingering dark power. 
Such a terrible side effect wouldn't exactly engender a trust of magic among the locals, a sentiment not uncommon in the first place. But Sodden is different because the defeat of Nilfgaard involved a heroic stand by 22 sorcerers, 14 of whom were slain in the process of obtaining victory. The grateful people of Sodden erected an engraved menhir in memoriam to the fallen victorious defenders. It is clear that the surviving sorcerers assisted the raising of the monument, given its great size. Though Ciri's death may validate his belief that destiny is not real, there is something more to consider. Malsak had warned him of the high cost of failing to give destiny her due, while also warning that no one says no to the line of Susintra, Queen Calanthe. Geralt thinks back on his first return trip to Sintra years before when he learned Calanthe briefly considered having him killed, only to change her mind, seemingly because the queen realized that while it's one thing to cheat the Witcher out of a promise, it's another thing entirely to cheat destiny. Geralt is prepared to do exactly that, however, though she still has a lingering concern after he agrees not to take her grandchild or any child. If destiny is not merely a myth, if it really exists, Doesn't a fear arise that it may backfire? If it backfires, it'll backfire on me, he answered placidly, for I am the one acting against it. Those words he spoke back then eat at him now. He worries he was wrong on that count, that his own denial of destiny is related to the fall of Sintra. Death dogs his footsteps, but he fears to look over his shoulder. With that, he imagines that Destiny's revenge has struck the person he loves most of all, Yennefer. Thus, he fears to read the names of the fallen sorcerers inscribed on the men here, seemingly certain that hers will be among them, confirming not just her death, but his responsibility for it. She, too, had warned him of this some time ago. Ride to Sintra. Go there as fast as you can. Fell times are approaching, Geralt. Very fell. You cannot be late. It cannot have escaped his notice that Yennefer is rather knowledgeable when it comes to such things, and we've seen that of Malsack as well. So Geralt climbs the hill at Sodden to read the names on the men here, but when he arrives after a long, hot walk, still weak from his wound and recovery, he can't bring himself to look at the final names on the inscription. There's a faint rustling behind him, and he looks over his shoulder to find a woman, oddly untouched by nature. She was bright, unnaturally, luminously bright against the stone. Who are you? He asked slowly. Don't you know? Yes, I do, he thought, gazing into the cold blue of her eyes. Yes, I think I do. He is facing death. He thinks his time has come, or at least that he's ready, and he tells her so. But death says to him... Not today. Next, he seems to pass out again, or fall asleep, thanks to the magic of the place, or his literal brush with death. Yurga finds him there and points out he didn't have to walk all the way up. Everyone in Sodden, even the children, know the names of those 14. Geralt has by now seen 13 of the names and is still unable to look, certain about that last one being Yennefer of Venegerberg. Instead, Geralt asks to be told the name, and it's no one he's even heard of. The Witcher was just wrong, again. West of Sodden, before that decisive battle where the sorcerers and many other brave defenders lost their lives... Sintra itself was destroyed. The royal family, including Queen Calanthe and King Ike, have been killed, and according to Dandelion, it is no ordinary war of conquest. The enemy armies seem to be making a point of destroying and killing as much as possible, even keeping in mind that such is fairly normal in war. This is something more. So we have been given the answer to our earlier question, what about Ciri? Geralt believes she's dead, 
given the destruction of Sintra and the slaying of the royal family. And that's why he's been acting this way. This information came to him recently. He was on his way to Sintra when he encountered those fleeing its destruction. The refugees included none other than his friend Andaline, who filled him in on all this news. Had he come a bit sooner, would this have been averted? That's the question. He is perhaps feeling guilty and thinking of the dead princess who wanted to be with him, but perhaps also cynically validated in his belief that destiny is not real. If it were, then why is Ciri dead? Yet how can we follow Geralt's logic when we've just seen that Geralt was wrong? Hmm. Here in this story, there is chance encounter after chance encounter, some directly and some remembered and recent, and some of those memories were called to the fore thanks to a powerful hallucinogen that Geralt drinks after awakening for the first time. This drink called Black Gull is so strong that Geralt warns Jurgen not to even touch the substance, let alone drink any himself. After he quaffs it, his head hasn't even touched his makeshift pillow before he's floating back through time to think of Yennefer, whom he was already thinking of before he drank that, given he uttered her name while passed out. Chance encounters have been a key piece of the evidence proving that destiny exists in this world. Geralt has been able to rationalize a lot, if not all of it, away Though using words like coincidence, uh, things like that, or by attaching additional conditions to it, as we see Yennefer do in this memory when she says destiny is insufficient, that there must be something more. While still under the influence of the Black Gull, the question comes up again in the present when he wakes up. I'm glad our paths crossed. Chance, she said, but this time there was no coolness in her voice. Or perhaps destiny, he asked. Astonished, for the excitement and nervousness had suddenly evaporated from him completely. Do you believe in destiny, Vicenna? Yes, she replied after a while. I do. It's his own mother. A moment he had long wondered about and considered for many decades. How would it go? How is a son supposed to react when facing his mother for the first time since she gave him up to a process that kills most children? From the description given by Yurga afterwards, the blood pouring from her nose and all, she almost kills herself healing him. Like many mothers would, she scolds him for taking hallucinogenic drugs, pointing out that they have no healing properties. That leaves us to ponder the question why he wanted to take it so badly in the first place while he was hurt. Likewise, he wants to ask her a question, but he says he will wait until morning to do it when he can see her in the light of day. Perhaps he's giving her an out from having to answer But she goes further and just knocks him out, period, putting him to sleep with a spell and telling him not to think of her again, nor to seek her out, that she was a dream. The next day, though, Yurga speaks of her efforts, how he and the others fled to the forest upon seeing her magic in action, even though it was of the healing sort, and how she could barely stand by the end, her face as white as a sheet. This perhaps mirrors Geralt's effort to save Yurga at the beginning after his helpers had fled to the forest, his face white from the elixir, and how after the fight, he was unable to stand. As they travel further, they see more evidence of the destruction left by the war, but also the rebuilding efforts. Geralt, perhaps thinking of Vicenna and Ciri and other things, says, Life must go on. It doesn't matter what happened. Life must go on. Perfectly in alignment with this, the final chance encounter comes in the final scene, the proverbial best for last, and it seems to seal the deal on what Geralt has learned via his vision quest and actual quest. When they arrive at Jurga's home, his family greet him and remind him that though they're happy for this new wealth, his return, his presence is what matters most of all. But there's another person there, someone who isn't a member of Jurga's family. 
There she is, in an otherwise utterly obscure location. It's Siri. She apparently hadn't been speaking much, but when she sees Geralt, it sends her wounded soul soaring. Her own grandmother had earlier agreed with Geralt that what they are faced with is no fairy tale. But this would be the absolute worst moment to try to convince Siri of that. Running into her is a coincidence piled on top of coincidences, and it's not even the first time, given the events of the last story. Let this one sink in, folks, because it probably did for Geralt in this moment, too. He has now claimed the law of surprise twice that we've seen, and both times, destiny led him to Siri. Even a stubborn man like Geralt can't dismiss this as coincidence. It has to be destiny. But even that is not sufficient to capture the strength of this connection. Mere words cannot convey that sense either. However, the moment and Siri both demand that he speak. It's just like they predicted, Geralt. Like they predicted. I'm your destiny. Say it. I'm your destiny. You're more than that, Siri. Much more. Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, We're going to get into our reactions here. I guess we'll uh, we'll go with you first, Mikhail. This is a really interesting one because you put squishy, which I I think that we are all kind of in our feels. And we're all huge fans of The Witcher, right? Like for the, like, just clarification, everyone. Uh, all of me, Mikhail, and Aziz have all read all of the novels, so we know the whole story. Uh, we're not going to try to spoil that here, but this is a huge moment. This is a huge moment of transition and realization for Geralt. There's so many things that happen here. Some can be a little bit confusing where I talk about that and kind of explain that. But your general thoughts on the chapter, Mikhail, because this one, like I said, doesn't feel like a short, it feels like the prologue to the main, main kind of arc. Yeah, it really does. And I I love how, I mean, (laughs) I kind of feel bad for any like dude bros who who were like, I'm reading this for like the awesome fight scenes because no, sorry, you just get a man like stuck in his feels and uh, you have to deal with that. Yeah, I love how we like go through. I mean, I wrote in the notes like the important people, the important women. It's it's really people, I guess, with, you know, when you throw dandelion in there. But it's such an interesting kind of walk through Geralt's relationships and the people who have been most influential on his life, um, certainly his life as it is in the present. And like, it's, it's emotion after emotion, you know, like we get, we get a sex scene, we get like his first real parental moment. It's like, uh, Geralt's, Geralt's growing up guys. He's, he's becoming a real boy. Seeing his mom there must've messed with his head a little bit, right? Like we know that like the trial of the grasses, look at what he had to go through. Like, not to say that Vesemir wasn't a good parent because he supported him, but having your real mom and dad in the situation to know that you're loved is such a huge difference, right? Like Siri has a kind of a similar situation, which we'll talk about after. Like she's, you know, I mean, Kalantha is, she's basically Kalantha's heir, so to speak. So there's so many small subtle nuances. We say coincidences, we know mm-hmm. they're not. And they really, it really just kind of, clicks it's just like yeah yeah this is such a good one because we get more of of just just the fact that calanthe's in this one by itself gives it like a bump (laughs) because she's so fun that she has such good dialogue she's good exchanges with Geralt. you know we don't get a lot of them but they're they're precious and of course yeah there's so many feels in this one because you're right it's just piled on top The the coincidences are piled on top but that's that's by design uh, but all those coincidences are very emotional or lead to things that are very emotional. And, and 
things that we've been talking about throughout all these stories. They're not, for the most part, they're not new concepts. They're just, they've, a lot of them are peaking here. A lot of learning moments, yeah. right? Like Sapkowski has led us here. A lot of learning moments, a lot of kind of education for Geralt, a lot of failure, mm-hmm. right? And now, now he's like, okay, maybe, maybe I can. Yeah, right. Like a lot of readers are probably on a similar path to understanding some of those things they hadn't really thought about, or at least they're like, oh, I'm, I feel this more now. I understand it more now, you know, that I've gone through it rather than uh, maybe haven't thought about these things before, for example, you know, these certain themes. Yeah, it's like things have been like simmering at a very low temperature for a while and like gradually increasing. And now it's finally like really hitting a boil. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And and, and there's one other, there's like, well, at least one, not, not one other, rather several other things we noticed, but in particular here, just to mention a couple of examples of things that show the transition. We don't even have a, a funniest moments section for this one. It's just, just this one's just not funny. <laughs> I, I, do, I do have one funny thing that I've been meaning okay, to mention, cool, yeah. but um, nice. it's so small. You'll laugh when you hear it. Right on. Kalatha, Kalatha sarcasm. <laughs> yeah, funny. I mean, her wit is, is pretty strong. Like that's a good example. Like you definitely, that, that, that yeah. works, but, but there's no like silliness, you know, there's no, uh, none of that sort of thing. None of that whimsy. Like right, because right, they usually like we, yeah. we usually get like a little of that, right? Like it's it's not it's never the focus, but it like it goes there sometimes to kind of like comic relief or whatever. But this, yeah, it's not. This one's just heavy the whole pretty much the whole way through, and there's no fairy tale comp, right? We usually have some sort of fairy tale comp or influence, and as far as we know, there's none of us could think of one. So that and they literally say this is not a fairy tale. So I think he's telegraphing that that transition as well that he's no longer doing that. Uh, so that's seems pretty significant. <laughs> This this one is like you you say telegraphing is serious by design. Yeah, ending the short stories with this story felt really impactful. It felt like wow, this okay, this matters. Now we have come to understand that the law of surprise, everything that Gerald did, that means something. It's not just nothing. I, I was trying to think of like oh well, you know, strangers meeting on a bridge. Like it's kind of <laughs> it's kind of evocative of a fairy tale. But then, you know, I think Aziz pointed out that, that it's not fairy tale. It's a real life thing that they repeat a couple of times. And like that seems really pointed and, and significant to me. Like, I, I think this is a deliberate departure from the fairy tale pattern. And we've seen the trope of like a merchant down bad, his cart's broken down, some sort of, you know, passerby with a horse and a sword, you know, hey, like, what can I do for yeah. you? Like, you know, like, like that's not uncommon. But yeah, like um, that is a, it's like a, you, can use that, <laughs> you call that a trope if you want. That's for sure. But yeah, it's yeah, almost so yeah. general. It's more like I don't necessarily know if it's, <laughs> it's a trope. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's kind of a common, like a maybe more a common occurrence, yeah. you know, that we something familiar stories yeah. like Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah. So we'll talk more about the story structure, you know, kind of the craft, the lore connecting these characters, the, the, the mirroring. They always try to make sure there's there's always a ton of that yeah. here. And <laughs> there is a lot here. Like we mentioned some examples in the synopsis, but it's just it's just it's nonstop. It's great. <laughs> I love it. Uh, as you brought up a great point privately, this kind of being a prologue. That's kind of what it felt like to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. And we and we've talked about this in other podcasts. We are getting to this last short story. We've kind of previewed it, kind of teased it a little bit, but this one felt a little bit different. You know, you know, like I, I hate to use a song of ice and fire as an example, no, but when you're getting into a new book and you have that little, <laughs> <laughs> that little, st- well, look at my my blanket in the background here. Uh, and, uh, 
only with two awesome songs and licensed fire content creators here, but it's setting the stage, right? Like that's what it feels like when you read a program. And that kind of what it felt like to me. Yeah, I think this is of all of the stories, this is the one that makes the least sense on its own. Uh, you put it that way. Like you're like, <laughs> who are these? Like what? Like the other ones, you, there's, there's at least some bearing, but like you get so much character work in this one. There's so much character work, like with, with someone that you just have to be familiar with for it to make any sense. And then all these people he knows. So yeah. <laughs> but you know, like this story is one of those, is one of those reasons why it's so difficult to recommend people to recommend like just a couple of short stories, you know, like just read this one and this one, this one, you know, because the, this story is as successful as it is because it comes after so much that we've experienced before. You know, and like mm. it really, I mean, I see it as kind of like a, a two parter with the sort of destiny story, you know, which actually has a lot of, I mean, a, the idea of destiny obviously is very explicit in that story, but also we have Geralt remembering his conversation with Calanthe that we see in this story, in that story. Um, and obviously it, this book ends um, the, the encounter with Siri that he has in that story. Uh, yeah, it is definitely a prologue to the main series, but it's also like uh, you know just a really successful conclusion to the journey that we've been on in in the short stories you make an excellent point perspective is important right like if i had to recommend a couple of short stories for someone to check out from the witcher books i'd say hey like obviously read them all because i'm a huge witcher fan. <laughs> but you, you you would have to say well you can't leave out the sort of destiny and something more because Geralt and siri need so much context to what you know it's going to be happening in the main novel so it's, it, it it does kind of feel like that it's like ah oh, like I would like to recommend some of the other ones, but this one is kind of like really, really important too. Because yeah, like if you had to, if you could only do three, right? It would be these two and one other one. Yeah, and I'm not sure. Maybe which the one last wish. Maybe. Yeah, I was going to say that was the first one that came to mind for me too. Um, the lesser evil will probably be another. Yeah, or one. bounds of reason since it uh, starts. Yeah. This, oh, oh. this all <laughs> off, you know. But I, I guess you can yeah. do without that one. Maybe just part, kind of feel your way through it. But yeah, no, it's tough. It's tough. Yeah. And now our list is. <laughs> yeah. Going to six or seven. See what we're doing here. Just like we try to end the podcast on time and our podcast time grows. Anyway, yeah. Uh, So another thing that seems a little different here that we get a POV from Yurga. That's that's not typical at all. We don't getting POVs from different people. Now, of course, when we get in the main series, POVs from other people are going to be very normal. But this marks a transition point because of that i think this is i think we've definitely had some moments from other characters but mostly it's been Geralt and narrator and that's about it there's occasionally you get like maybe a minute from somebody else but it's yeah we've had like storytelling from torque and philovandrel and other people yeah. like that but not like in detail like this where he's like kind of i mean like we're Geralt's always seeing dark. through Geralt's eyes and hearing through Geralt's ears although now that i'm saying that i actually am forcibly reminded of the very, very, very beginning of the first short story of the Witcher short story, where there's that weird scene where Geralt just kills a bunch of dudes in the tavern, like, <laughs> just because he wants to meet up with the guy. <laughs> Come a long way since then. But yeah, that that also technically does take place outside of his point of view. But it's still early days. I think we can we can yeah, give that a, yeah. a crap you can pass. call that narr- you can probably call that narrator yeah. but still it's mostly yeah you're right it's like it's there's it's there's not much like this if anything where it's definitely in someone's head and that really goes to the point you were saying before mccall about how 
Like you feel you feel bad for anyone who really wanted the action more of the action stuff because you get to, in this this moment of fighting. This dude is just like cower. You're seeing from his POV and he's mostly cowering and not even looking, and he can't see very well even when he can because it's dark. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like you're just like he's just like slicing some things and his sword is spinning around and then it's over. Yep. <laughs> It's a pretty cool fight, though. I will say, like, when Geralt, like, skewers the thing that's on Yurga's back and, like, he feels the dead weight of it dragging him down. Like, it's very like, yeah. evocative. And they did a pretty good job with the show version of it, too. You're like, oh, those, yee. <laughs> no, thank you. Dude, no. you literally read my mind. I was just about to jump in to say that. We were talking about that privately, like the Talantha stuff, the, the flashback and the cart. We didn't get to see much of the Vicenna stuff. But I, I really did feel like, this was a pretty good translation. Yeah. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about a translation uh, that uh, Ludmila pointed out as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so that's uh, Yeah, um, too, uh, massive. Like, I'm still a little bit like, what the heck <laughs> should we write to someone? <laughs> like, <laughs> we might as well talk about it now. So, okay. Yeah. So we were like, we had this question for everyone. We're like, why it, Why does Calanthe consider killing Siri? Because uh, it's quite explicitly says that in the book. And that, but that's not, all, and, and by the way, that's not what happens. As, in the show, as an so infant, like, oh. much less like, yeah, yeah, as an infant. Yeah. And so we're, we, for those of you who saw this, a few of you saw this in our Facebook group, uh, Ludmilla responds to this question is like, oh, that's a translation error. It's supposed to be that he's told to kill Geralt, that Malsack is told to kill Geralt. And he's going to, he's like, and I was ready to do it because <laughs> no one says no to Calanthe, but then she changed her mind. So that's a pretty, that's a pretty massive difference. <laughs> I mean, so. So big, so big. Well, it's it's quite clear that they translated that well on the show. And that's what I was saying to Aziz. I was like, hey, like, they made that very clear that Kalantha was trying to protect Siri. Like, she was so frightened that something was going to, like, that she was going to lose Siri. And and part of why that was so confusing was because it, like, it doesn't track with her other actions here, you know, with, like... She yeah. she is so protective of her, and like you get that sense that that they have such a deep relationship, and then it's like, uh, also it started off with uh, me planning your murder, infant baby. <laughs> yeah. The one thing that sort of made sense about it is when there's like this this note that she may have been willing to kill the child rather than allow it to be let allow her to be captured. But that's that that's un, that's like the only thing that's even close to related. And that's that even didn't come. That didn't even happen either. So <laughs> and that, and by the way, that is a common occurrence in, in war from ancient history. Like, you know, you're getting sacked and you know, you're getting killed. But your own family, is, if you're a royalty, you know, kind of die by your own hand, yeah. essentially, if they knew that you were going to be tortured. Yeah. Or enslaved. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's yeah. awful. Or, or used for power and negative. Yeah. Awful choice to make. But yeah, you're right that that's, that's definitely a choice people have faced and seems to be that's also how it was portrayed. Again, to mention the show, that's how it was portrayed there. A lot of people taking their own life makes sense <laughs> for this situation. And that's part of Kalantha's fear as well, because she knows. Yeah. Right. She knows that Siri is special. She knows that she could potentially someone getting a hold of her with a bad thing, the wrong, but you know, like a villain getting a super yeah, weapon. We've seen that she's got power. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> we saw what happened in the forest of Brocklon, like, hmm, this is just powerful magic just doesn't work on her. And she has prophecies. Hmm. Okay. Where is this going? <laughs> and Ryan makes a great point. They did that in the show when they passed out the, the suicide shots and Columbus says, obviously go. So yeah, another, like I said, that, that was, that for me was one of the best translations from the book to the show. 
because uh, it is kind of confusing the way um, the story the story structure works in this uh, in this one. For yeah. Sure. So one of the if we get back to the story structure, one of the reasons yeah. that I guess uh, you guys you guys might have different uh, ideas on this that where we lose Geralt's perspective during these really key moments is related to his what what's happening very crucially like at the beginning the thing that seems to be removed from our direct perspective that we would normally see in his mind is him asking for the law of surprise and us and us not realizing the things he's that are on his mind like we don't know at this point in the story that he thinks siri is dead that's something that comes later in the story like oh he's are at this point he's already found out sintra's been burned so he thinks siri's dead so he's got he's going to be having really dark thoughts or or at least thinking a lot about stuff that would be a lot to handle <laughs> to try to make the story go somewhere. So you're in Yurga's perspective instead for all that. And then at the end, when he has this great revelation of seeing her and like, oh my God, there she is again. It's also, we see it from someone else's point of view because it would just be, I don't know, it'd be hard to, it'd be so overwhelming to, to get that from his point of view. It'd be, uh, it's almost better to see it from the outside. Yeah, it's, it's also, it's an interesting tempering of the emotion because, mm. you know, it, it, as we said, it's such an emotional story, you know, like, I mean, Geralt meeting his mother is like, I mean, from just from left field, like you, you expect some of the Yennefer stuff, but like, you know, it's, it yeah. goes really hard. Like there's a line about how like her voice like was triggering memories that shouldn't even have existed. And and it was it's like so gut feeling of a person's relationship to their parent. And I, I I feel like I don't know, but maybe maybe part of the choice was to to keep the focus on that and then let us kind of feel because there are no questions, obviously, in that, like what what Gerald's feeling. We, we know everything about that. But to to leave to our imagination, kind of, I guess, the, the bookends of where Geralt begins with what he's feeling at the beginning and then how it culminates in the realization that Siri is alive. I, I will note one detail, which is that in the in this little section when Geralt, he goes up to the hill of Sodden, he meets death like you do. <laughs> There's a line that he's still he's still like his his leg is healed, but he's still like favoring it. He's protecting his leg. And then Jurga notes that he had never seen a man run as fast as he sees Geralt run when he when he hears Siri. And like, I think that it's mm. it's it's a different kind of emotional music. You know, like it, it just, it just, it's a different kind of harmony, I guess, to like, it's direct and offset, but you kind of get the impact just, just as well. Can I ask you both a question? Yeah. Did you truly feel sorry for Geralt in this story? I, I felt sorry for Geralt, like, you know, like the stuff about his mom and him facing death and him saying he's ready for that. But then by the end, I felt hopeful. I was like, oh, damn. He, he's starting to understand his purpose. Like, right? Like, that's kind of where Sapkowski was trying to go with this. Like, hey, sometimes you got to hit rock bottom before you have kind of a, a light bulb go on for you. Or, or at least a path be illuminated. Hmm. You know? And I'm not, not trying to say that Geralt didn't know where he was going, but this certainly pushes him in another direction. <laughs> a well, whole that's, big actually, one. that's a great way to phrase it, too, because the, a lot of this was, was painted as the fog and the haze around him. So if you, if you mm. describe it as that he's found like new light or something like that, it, it works really well as a metaphor. Yeah. Like certainly I did feel like some of these things you feel really bad about, like personally, I've never met my own father and I've wondered what I would say to him or what, how that would go. So I can certainly feel some connection to that aspect of it. Now it's a lot more intense for, for Garrett would be because he was given up to no one, right. To, to people that, 
might have killed him. So that's a bit different. But still, it's like an uh, experiment. Right. Yeah, but that's <laughs> kind of the point of fantasy is to take a lot of these like familiar real world things that are very basic and mundane that happen to real people and just expand on the ideas using these impossible uh, magical story devices or or details or whatever you want to call them. For example, you know, we have this uh, Geralt is drugged up for half of this story and we're not quite sure what that why and what directly impact it has but it certainly aids the confusion of the perspective and the timeline <laughs> macro makes a good point and destiny bit slap Geralt. <laughs> i mean that's that's accurate and also like i mean you I, I very much feel that like this i like sort of destiny so much better than i like the last wish and that's not really the fault of the last wish because it, it is very piecemeal it was it was intended i guess as you know, to be a complete story, but you can really trace Geralt's emotional arc through the sort of destiny. And like, this is really a culmination. Like I think Eithne has that line about how Siri has to pull him back from the blackness in sort of destiny, the, the short story. Yeah. And I think Geralt is really close to that blackness in this to, to, to going into oblivion. He says, he tells Dandelion that there's nothing for him on the side of the river I almost wonder, like, I mean... He takes my, Death's hand. He's yeah, like, I'm ready. So, yeah, suicidal. you're totally right. Yeah, you're, you're I mean, totally why right. else would he stop with Yurga, really? I mean, like, it's not really his MO, you know, just, like, random individual people. And, like... Yeah. It's certainly, it's certainly interesting, though, because he was about to give up. And right, then and, and he asks for something he doesn't think is going to happen. You know, he doesn't believe yeah. in destiny. I'm asking you for what you find at home that you don't expect. Like, he doesn't think that's going to happen. I, th- I think Geralt is, like, as far as he can go, and then... He is literally saved from that by by Siri and by the revelation of something more, a greater purpose. You know, it's vaguely like maybe less, maybe a little more than vaguely, but it's it's a little bit like in Shard of Ice when he goes looking for a fight mm-hmm. there and, uh, you know, doesn't bring his sword or whatever. <laughs> and, <laughs> and like next time, Witcher, you want to, you know, <laughs> just, uh, you know, hang yourself instead or whatever yeah. it was. <laughs> it's like, what was your intention in that situation? Yeah. You know what I mean? He was like. And, and you can see what he says later. You're, you're, I think you're really onto something here too. Piece together all the things he's would be thinking about at that moment. He's blaming himself for Siri. He doesn't yet know about, or and Sintra, he doesn't yet know about Yennefer, but it doesn't seem like a surprise to him when he does consider that he's responsible for her death. He says it would have been appropriate for him to die like that later. So, yeah, I think you, I think you may have nailed it there. <laughs> but then, but then Destiny was like, so you're not a believer? <laughs> also, I don't accept uh, it. Hand, so we're not yeah, going it really is interesting because Sapkowski like loves to play with you. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? He, uh, he's a lot like George R. R. Martin in a way where he likes to invert things and kind of trick you and put red herrings in there. And he's just like, I feel like he's he was a lot more straightforward in this when he was like kind of hitting you over the head with the kind of the, the themes and kind of the point of it, you know? Did anyone else feel like that? I don't know. I kind of, I felt like it was more, I felt like it was more clear. Well, I think what he does is, yeah, it's more clear. I think you're right. Like some of them, it's are very straightforward. Some of them are familiar because we've been seeing them. Some of these themes we've seen repeatedly, but also I think that he does this combination of, there are some versions of very straightforward themes. And then there's the same themes that he also paints like, as highlights or as undertones, you know, if you're to use uh, McCall's earlier analogy of songs, there's like, there's this heavy beat, you know, marking destiny and fear and all these other recording themes, but there's also like a minor synth playing in the background. That's also 
speaking to these same themes, but in a much more subtle way. So it's like it's like a harmony. So you can look for the obvious ones, but there's also the the subtle ones, which I think is cool. Yeah, and I think part of what offsets the, I guess, clearer thematic point is the the structure of the story and the way it's told, because it is very confusing, even just on a sentence by sentence level. I just find it really interesting that like flashbacks are not denoted. You know, it Geralt literally is like in the present with Yorga. He'll turn his head or he turned his head and he's at belt. And like, it's a really interesting. And then, and then you have those weird trippy things like with his mom and then even more so the conversation with death that are happening in the present, but feel like flashbacks or dreams or whatever. Uh, yeah. I, so yeah. I, I think that's kind of <laughs> maybe what's being used to obscure uh, some of the, some of the more obvious points. But I mean, I, I agree that like, I mean, look, we, if we haven't earned some of the statement of, of theme at this point, then like, when will we earn it? You know, do we have to read another five books? <laughs> There's never been a war like this. The bard said gravely. The Nilfgaard army are leaving behind scorched earth and bodies behind them, entire fields of corpses. This is a war of destruction. Total destruction. But then we get the connected dot for that. Yurga describes what's happening now. We endured the greatest turmoil when the black forces marched through our land. True enough, it looked then as though they'd turn everything here into a wasteland. Many who fled then never returned. But fresh people have settled in their place. Life must go on. And I actually, I, I totally forgot to write this, but, and and as an American, call me out if I'm speaking mm-hmm. bullshit, but it strikes me as kind of an interesting thing to come from a Polish author when Polish history is a lot of like, you're Germany, you're Russia, Ooh. you're, you know, like, like my family comes from Poland and like, it's hard to figure out which villages are which because depending on the point of time they'll have belonged to a different country yeah so that kind of strikes me as a life goes on in poland no matter what oh, you know yeah that that's again if i'm wrong interesting call me it out. gets a good <laughs> thought regardless if it's accurate that's it seems like you're you're on to something interestingly too this is okay so this is supposedly about a year later apparently so this is you know that much transition i think there's a an emerging theme here that hasn't been as apparent we've pointed out many times how Geralt mansplains magic thinks he's right about a lot of magical things turn out to be wrong on quite a few of them right (laughs) not all he's right some of the times you know but he's wrong a lot but when he comes to when it comes to reading people he's much better at that (laughs) <laughs> like in this spot he read the situation like the war because Gerald argues with Daniel and he's like eh, all wars start for money and power like why what's different about this one and he's like no everyone's being destroyed and like no Gerald was pretty much right I mean <laughs> that's, that's but there isn't there are other factors he's right but basically the means being used aren't that different it's still war even if the goals are a little different, it still has the same impact on the people and all that we talked about Gerald's morality as well this leads to his moral code This is why he chooses not to involve himself in political matters, because he knows there's always some sort of intention for power, money. Oh, no, the white flame dancing on the graves of his enemies is a totally benevolent force. What are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah, that guy, he's real nice. They say that death dogs your footsteps, Geralt of Rivia, but that you never look back. And then Geralt says to death... They say you dog my footsteps. <laughs> Who says that exactly, Geralt? Cite your, cite your sources. <laughs> and then they also have that 
that mirroring moment where they end up laughing, where they both kind of trick each other, where she's like, oh, I didn't know the kid wasn't there. I just it was a shot in the dark. And then she turns that around on him and they start laughing. And then they both admit to being afraid, to being afraid, which, you know, and Calanthe um, also like has that moment where she respects him more because he's like. I'm not, you know, I don't want to do this. I don't want to take a kid. I'm, this isn't really what I want to do. And yeah, so. She calls out Ike, my permanently absent That's interesting, husband. right? Like, what is that I, Yeah, mean? what's going on there? Yeah. <laughs> I like Ike. What's wrong with them? No, I, I like Ike too. And they seem so like they were really vibing, but I, Maybe it's I don't know. Maybe it's a war I don't know. Hmm. but yeah that's that was an uh, that was a that was a a peculiar and interesting comment to take note of yeah my permanently absent husband yeah that's a pretty deep dab (laughs) yeah (laughs) let's talk about his conversation with her and about being a witcher and how this this is some of the best mirroring of all about her dilemma being somewhat of a mirror to Vicenna's dilemma also, while also being a mirror to some of his dilemma in terms of being taking over as her protector and all that. So it's pretty interesting, right? Like it's uh, it's hard to parse it all out, but it's it's excellent. She's such a strong personality, right? It's so hard to do. like she's just so forced. There's nothing that gets past her either, right? It's like she's just yeah. hmm. her paranoia. She's also paranoid. And she's she's not willing to yeah. let herself be like put into one box or another you know like she won't like it's obvious that she's a caring grandmother who doesn't want her child to be taken for or grandchild to be taken to be a witcher but she refuses that to be the to let that be the reason why Geralt doesn't take the kid you know she kind of has to let the story play out farther you know I think that's why she gets that little dig in at the end that like oh if you if you actually knew what was going on you would you know, Destiny's laughing at you, Geralt of Rivia, you know, but like she, she, (laughs) (laughs) like nice of you to be here now. (laughs) But she, she really goes off at him for, for the very idea that it would be his, I guess, generosity that would, you know, prevent this from happening as opposed to her will. Yeah. Her pride was very pricked in that moment. And then he, and she, she points out that he did the right thing. It's like, you did the right thing after saying the wrong thing. That's how you address a queen (laughs) when you're from your, from one knee. Like now, now you're behaving correctly. You know, (laughs) basically she's like, that just saved you. (laughs) It it is interesting that we talk about her though, because you know, she, she, she is the ruler of one of the biggest kingdoms. We can't discount her either. Like she is intelligent, right? Like, for them to have survived this long with Nilfgaard kind of stirring around and doing their thing, she's she has to be weary. You know what I mean? She has to be wary of what's going on. Yeah, she comes off like some people might see her, uh, especially in world, um, as evil or at least willing to do dark things. But really, she's more like she's just do it ruthless, I think is more accurate. I don't think she's evil at all. What can I say? It's a base world. But that's no reason for us all to become despicable. What we need is kindness. My father taught me that, and I teach it to my sons. Protecting people, saving their lives. How do you judge that, good or bad? Those 14 on the hill, you there on that bridge, what were you doing, good or bad? I don't know, said Geralt with an effort. I don't know, Jürger. Sometimes it seems to me that I know, and sometimes I have doubts. Would you like your son to have doubts like that? Why not? The merchant said gravely. Might as well, for it is a human and a good thing. What? Doubts. Only evil, sir, never has any. But no one can escape his destiny. 
you know, I, I really like that idea of like only evil has no doubts. That's that's a really powerful idea. Yeah, that is an yeah very insightful philosophy and something that will play out, frankly, uh, yeah. in the series. <laughs> you know. Maybe that's why the white flame is so confident. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. He does not seem to have doubts. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I have to tease it sorry we're getting but Calanthe does it, it is really Calanthe does have doubts yeah. that's that's really important right like yeah. she's has lots of doubts here because she's trying to be a you know she's all she's balancing her nation with her granddaughter as well it's a tough thing pair of things to guilt is such a strong thing right like it's seen as, as a negative thing but also it means that you also self-reflect you know what I mean like hey did I make that that's right decision point. was I right or wrong and to question right or wrong is still important. Some people don't question that at all, like we're saying. I think their version of whatever they want to create mm-hmm. is the right version, no matter what anyone else. <laughs> and I mean, it's it's so interesting that like what Calanthe is actually remembered for, or the way the way her story ends is this very noble thing. And like, ironically, she and Geralt keep talking about like what the storytellers will say, and then it's actually a bard who tells Geralt what, ha- what happens to Calanthe, but uh, <laughs> seemingly without too much <laughs> embroidery and That's like funny. she does have this incredibly noble and horrible end you know like she fought like any any man like it's very almost tolkien-esque the way it's written yeah mm-hmm. I, I i guess it comes you know that's what comes from having certainty you know you, you can't do that without having resolved some doubt yeah that that's that's well that's really well said it becomes i think it's even more of a, a theme going forward we'll have to keep an eye out for it in, in the main novels things like this there's definitely a lot of trying to suss out what's good and what isn't in certain difficult, complex situations that help serve as a uh, like a bit of a lodestone <laughs> looking for. Geralt is really like good this. at that. By yeah, the way. yeah, you're right. And he tries very hard. And that's part of what you were saying about self-reflection. And like, it's important to him to try to figure out what's what's good. The thing is, he's already figured a lot of it out or he thinks he has. And so instead of seeing the process of figuring it out, we see that he's already decided. And (laughs) it's just, (laughs) these are things he's thought about before. It's funny because he's usually giving advice to these big kingdoms and stuff because he's been around for a hundred years, but he can't seem to understand their destinies here. You know, it's it's kind of ironic. We still have these. Yeah. There's something about doubt that I think a lot of is easily confused with nihilism, right? Like you can't be sure that anything's true and and all that stuff. Mm. I think what, you know, Sapkowski is saying here, because this story is very anti-nihilistic and and the story that the books are in general, although they they brush with that a lot, is that like a doubt is not a sign that things aren't worth fighting for. You know, it's it's almost an evidence that they are because you can think about it and have questions and you know. Which is why the title is something more. Ding, mm-hmm. ding. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. There's always something more. I mean, there's always something more to consider. Or there's always something more. It's it's a very open ended statement on on purpose, I'm sure, because it applies in so many different ways. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, when you're doubtful, you're thinking of one conclusion. You're worrying about that one conclusion that probably is yourself telling you know, whatever it is this bad this bad outcome. You probably believe. That, yeah. Yeah. Right? And, so, yeah. so a lot of these characters help us navigate through some of these topics as well. Like Jurga himself is, of course, these conversations are obviously really important that he has with Geralt. But the kind of consistent thing that happens is he's basically got the opposite attitude about Geralt on a lot of things. But Geralt, he kind of finds himself having to agree with Jurga or at least not being able to disagree. We all deserve a hype man like Yeah, <laughs> right. Like he, he just, he's got this like really simple like what is it? The uh, it is there is a trope for this, like the the rustic the wise rustic or something like that. I don't know. 
a guy who knows how to live really well, just to, who handles all the basics handled. Like he's got a happy family, all these things that Geralt isn't, right? Like he is completely uncomfortable with, with a lot of these normalcy because he has no experience with it. But, uh, but he does respect it, appreciate it, and kind of, you know, it's like when they're at Beltane. Like they're amongst it, but they're not really a part of it right they're there but they feel like they're somebody else like they don't feel like they're actually a part of it because they aren't human they're not part of the re- the cycle of life in that sense they're not they can't reproduce and all that so it's all wrapped up <laughs> we're giving a shout out to golden cheeks <laughs> yes we never learn mrs yurga's name he just refers to her as golden cheeks <laughs> and and is somewhat willing to have her be sexually used by the random person that he's met on the road for saving his cart. So uh, just need to put that pin mm, out yep. there in reality. Different, uh, <laughs> his, his morals are a little um, different, aren't they? Confusing. What's up? Yeah. Say. What's up with Sodden? You know, speaking of that, did he fight in the war? Like he said, everyone that could fight was there. Like, well, does that include you? Um, because it was only a Did, year ago. Does he say that they fled? I think he says that they uh, fled. Yeah, he might be right. Like, he he talks about how a lot of people did flee. I don't know. I, I can't remember if he said he was among those people, but that would make some sense. He knows the story quite well. It's also, I mean, like, there's there's part of Yurga. It does make you think about, like, the way morality is presented in this world. Because he has a line about how, like, oh, it's no big deal that all these human soldiers died on, in Battle Sod. And, like, nobody has a monument to them, yeah. you know. <laughs> But the wizards who could have lived forever, and I'm and in my mind that's so backwards. It's like no, the wizards have had their time. Like yeah, let them sacrifice themselves. You know. <laughs> but it makes an interesting point though, right? Like the the men who died for this war. We, you know, that that was why no one no one wins in war, really. Yeah. You know. Yeah, that's true. That makes sense. So let's talk about Vicenna for a minute. Yeah, like. Very interesting. There's a few interesting like comparisons between the two of them. Like we're meant to see some parallels, but also some major differences, right? There's the idea that Yurga says they're both cut from the same cloth, how they give of themselves for others, which Geralt doesn't really like hearing that, I'm sure. But from Yurga's perspective, it seems to be true. And of course, there's this this is odd moment where uh, she looks kind of white faced from working so hard, spending so much magic. And Geralt has that same moment where Yurga sees him like that uh, after taking his elixir. I'm not sure if that was intentional or not, but it seems interesting because it's, it's come. It comes in this time of great tension when they're doing their their job right there. He's in the midst of being a witcher and she's in the midst of being a healer. I have a, I have a question here. Maybe you guys uh, something to ponder. Maybe the chat can chew on this idea as well. Is it possible that Geralt's wrong, that he was a child of surprise and that's why she gave him up? Does He doesn't seem to know the circumstances that well other than he was given to the Witchers, but he doesn't actually know her motivation. And Vesemir was trying to continue the line of Witchering and Witchers. Yeah, right? so... That was something that was very important. Yeah, so I just don't know. I mean, hmm. I think he actually would have had to have been a child of surprise because, I mean, Geralt even says it himself, like, when he's talking with Calanthe, you know, and she's like, oh, I thought sorceresses couldn't have children. And he says... I'm sure she thought the same thing. Yeah. It's like, well, that would make you a child of surprise, even if it's not the like, you know, man comes home from whatever, you know, like type of surprise. It's still, it's still, you know, a surprise. And a completely unique event, right? Like, yeah. It's, yeah, exactly. It's like, how did you, how were you born? You're like one in a bajillion in one in a bajillion because you not only survive, like are born from something that's not supposed to be possible, but you survived all this stuff that, and came out of it better than anyone else. <laughs> you know? Maybe Vesemir's his real dad. Da, da, da. 
that's that's why Siri and Geralt are so interesting if you think about it, right? Because because Geralt gets raised by Vesemir and Siri gets raised by Talantha, yeah. right? They both have that in common. They both had that common point. I mean, both huge huge influences on their lives. So I guess we could argue that you know they're technically in a similar situation. Yeah. What do y'all make of the the point about his name? Like, I thought that was interesting. They he brings that up. Like, no, I gave you that name. You know, I, I wasn't sure what to make of that. That's such a tender moment. It's like there is a lot of Yennefer in yeah. Visenna, I think, and part of that is the like, oh, you know, like I'm I'm just going to drop these truth bombs, you know, and, and like <laughs> by the way, you know, let you deal with them. The fact that she's like it doesn't it doesn't change anything. It doesn't give us a connection. Mm. But I I need you to know that your name came from me. Like that was I don't know. There's there's something really quietly powerful in that. Yeah, that's a, that's well said. Take note, everyone, just keep in the back of your mind that he's not really from Rivia, that he just made up an accent. Remember back, we, we have a second reason to uh, remember that odd opening scene in the very first short story where they the reason they come at him and he's able to start trouble that he wanted to start because, of, because it would get attention is because they mocked his Rivian accent. They're like, get out of here, Rivian. You know, remember that? <laughs> oh, it's such a weird opening to all this. <laughs> yeah, it's just, yeah. You're right. <laughs> we have Sam with an interesting point. I love the ambiguity of whether Geralt is a child of surprise or not. He speaks so much with the sort of almost agnostic mistrust of destiny. Mm, yeah, like because, yeah, maybe even if destiny is real, it, he hates it. It's like one of those kind of things. It's like, well, maybe you're real, but you're terrible. Look what you've done. <laughs> to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's a bit of, uh, there's a little bit of arrogance behind it. Maybe one of the most pointed questions that Calanthe asks is that's maybe easy to miss the significance of is Calanthe asks Geralt if he hates his mother. And I think that's partly because she's worried what Siri's going to think about if she gives up Siri, is Siri going to hate her? Uh, so she's just like one of the rare opportunities for her to find that out, right? Ask someone who's got this experience. And it's just one of her tender moments where she's asking a very honest question about how a child might feel, but very cleverly, indirectly, like a queen would, because she's super clever like that. So I thought that was really well done, uh, that moment. Yeah, very, very interesting interactions. And they're all interwoven. They all have some sort of connections. Like, yeah, just great overall. Uh, are we uh, done with the Senate? Shall we get into Vesemir? Yeah, what do you have to say about Vesemir? He's interesting. Like, he keeps popping up off page. Like, we obviously haven't seen him yet. I guess, minor spoiler, we're going to. But as a father figure, like, that's basically his parent. His, that's what his closest thing he has to a parent. So that's part of why he's introduced here as the transition away from, from his mother when he can barely remember to someone that he's known his whole life. It's still around um, his long, long life. And it's uh, not a big spoiler to say that Vesemir is going to be in season two of The Witcher. He's going to play a big role, and he plays a, a big role, obviously, in both Geralt and Ciri's life. Vesemir is an interesting character, right? He means so much to Geralt, just like Kalantha meant so much to Ciri. Do you agree? Yeah, I think so. It's a pretty good parallel. Even though, even though Geralt kind of resents him for having to go through the trial of the grasses and all that shit. Yeah, I, it's, I guess you can't blame Vesemir for that. I mean, he's not the, I don't know. It's also kind of ambiguous whether Vesemir is the one that 
made him do that like is it like right isn't he isn't he yeah. just he's a swords teacher he's a you know he wasn't like the yeah. the, the, the administrator or, or like the head of the school or anything like that yeah i mean there's a lot of ambiguity i i think it's it has the potential to be a very to have a very like dark background to that relationship like there's a line i think it's also from the sort of destiny story where gerald is thinking of being a child and little witchers being hungry for stories and all they get is the aching of their muscles mm. you know after the end of a grueling day <laughs> of, of training which which vesemir would have been responsible for regardless of whether he was That's the true. administrator of the trials of the grasses so i don't know i mean i think it there's something that gerald doesn't get from all of his relationships that i think is is a defining quality of some of what he is and he 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 starts to heal in that way i think through the series but there's a reason why he and yennefer haven't worked out yet and you know despite destiny and like i don't know maybe that in in that respect for the two of them the something more is that there's there's just something missing in that he has to be accepting um, right he has to be willing to receive that mm-hmm. correct mm-hmm. he has to be more yeah. open to the possibility instead of just saying ah, i don't believe in that <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's also there's also a certain amount of being used, I think, that happens in that relationship that also would happen in the Vesemir relationship and obviously happened with Vicenna. I don't know. I, I think that's an enduring theme of a lot of what Geralt experiences in his relationships and something that Siri starts to help him deal with. It's it's a it's a peculiar thing to consider, after all. Um, for one thing, you know, he doesn't have his own parents. Uh, they, he doesn't even know who his father was. That is revealed in a small side story we can talk about some other time. But it's he doesn't amount to anything important in the long run. What does seem to be important is that, and the point I'm trying to get at is that even though he doesn't have his real parents, he has something unusual, which is the guy who's his father figure that's been that has been around for a much longer period of time than even a normal father would be around, and, and even in extreme circumstances, because because of their you know extended lifespans, <laughs> he's had this this guy's been out there for his whole eighty or ninety years or however old he is. He's seen normally it <laughs> when you make it to eighty or ninety, your your father is gone by then. Um, <laughs> so, let alone still capable of like slaying manticores or what have you. Must have a lot of aches and pains. Yeah. <laughs> maybe why? Maybe why he's so grumpy. Some of the other big themes that are wrapped up in all this, rather than just being wrapped up in the characters or the story, some of it's wrapped up in the lore. And that's that's pretty cool. I think uh, with Beltane is one of the biggest parts of that. And so is death. Like we have these really powerful natural cycles or ideas or concepts. And uh, let's let's talk about that. We've got a couple of really good quotes from Yennefer here. Really powerful. After our winter will come the spring, and we shall not be reborn. What finishes will finish along with us. But both you and I are drawn to those bonfires, though our presence here is a wicked, blasphemous mockery of this world. So that is... Intense. What's that? Yeah. (laughs) Intense. Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) She's pretty serious there, yeah. Yeah, she's not in a chill. It's funny, because just like, what was it, like... 30 seconds before she had ensorcelled some young blonde boy and was leading him off to a bush, you know, to have her way with them. And now she's saying this. <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh, I mean, I think you could you could sort of take that as like she she actually says to Geralt that she doesn't want to hook up with him because like the idea of, you know, hooking up with him on the same terms that with that that she would with that kid, you know, just seemed very wrong yeah. to her. I think that's that's sort of part of like, you know, maybe Geralt has the black gull and she has 
meaningless sex. I, you get the sense that that's why Gerald's yeah. there too, right? Like that is a good know. point. He's there to have a good time. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the black gull thing, as far as like, is it a, is he medicating? Is he trying to like? Because people definitely do that. That's certainly not uncommon. People do hallucinogens to have experiences or to move past something or to resolve emotional blockades or what have you. It's it's difficult to put the you, to find the right phrases to describe what people are, are thinking because it's a very personal thing. But I think you're right. I, that certainly occurred but to me. But maybe not when you have a huge gaping leg wound just because just yeah, they're just is, tossing I, it out yeah, there. I just don't get it. <laughs> Especially on occasion like Beltane, right? Beltane is a moment when there's a transition. Yeah, right? you're right. That's like the whole, and the whole cer- point. Cer- and then transition to more flowery times, I guess, <laughs> or more prosperous times, <laughs> which kind of fits the story, yeah. right? A little bit of going from... I don't want to say the time before Beltane's darkness, but certainly um, there's more light after uh, he passed through Beltane. And of course, Beltane is on May 1st. Mm. And of course, that is supposedly <laughs> Siri's birthday. So this is also has some, some meaning in, in terms of lining up some events and uh, having things kind of point all in the same direction, which of course <laughs> climaxes with Jennifer flat out saying, go back to Sintra. Don't do it for real this time. Well, that's an important quote that she says, nature is born again, the cycle repeats itself, but not for us, Geralt. We cannot reproduce yeah. ourselves, which is a really important you know, theme in the story. And obviously how both Geralt and Yennefer will kind of find their legacies in Siri. But I think that's also important to just counterpoint with what, you know, Sapkowski kind of has both Geralt and Calanthe say about abortion. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I, I just wanted to call out that like very, you know, it's like the sacred right of every woman or something and cannot be, you know, it doesn't, doesn't bear debating or, you know, whatever the, the way they put it, it's very full throated <laughs> yeah. and uh, not something I expected to find in this, in this series. I think I was, I was, when I listened to that for the first time, I was like in Disney world, I was like waiting on a really long line for something. And then Calamity and Geralt just started talking about <laughs> the right to choose. And I was like, Oh, hey. dang. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. That was kind of surprising, but yeah, like a, all right. <laughs> yeah. And so there's this fear element. We've talked about it off and on throughout this episode. We can maybe focus on it. I mean, this, this, you know, we were talking about fear and the fear of death. You kind of have three things, right? You have fear, you have fear of death, and you have death in this story. And it's easy to kind of go along the lines of like, oh, well, Geralt's afraid of death. And that's why he doesn't look, you know, look back and, and, and all of that. Um, but I think it really carries on from the sort of destiny story where Geralt isn't afraid of dying, He's afraid of like carrying the infection of death to other people. And that's why he doesn't look behind him because he doesn't want to see the corpses that have been stacking up behind him for years and would, even if he wasn't, you know, this way, because even if he didn't attribute it to himself, because he's living longer than all these people. And, you know, it's the reason why he leaves Siri, you know, in, in the end of that story is because he can't expose her to this. He thinks it'll be his fault if she dies, which obviously leads to what he thinks happens when Dandelion tells him what happened to Sintra. And I think it's also why he's so convinced that the 14th name um, on the on the monument has to be Yennefer, because it couldn't end any other way in his estimation, right? Like he would, of course, he would cause the death of someone behind him who he loved, you know, and, and not be there. He was, he says, I was in the North, like that, that's kind of his weird comment about the yeah. whole thing. And it's, it's sort of like, you know, because he wasn't there almost. Yeah. Feels some know, guilt, it's, right? It's, yeah. I mean, it's a major guilt thing, but it's it's almost more than that because he, he feels directly responsible. Yeah. And he feels though, fears that he she, he's lost her, which kind of brings me to an interesting point I kind of want to bring up. There's 
you know, there's always been this argument that there's two main decision-making processes in life. You either make a fear or love-based decision, right? And we can argue that everyone wants love, I think, especially for humans. We can argue for all living things. But decisions made out of fear usually tend to lead you away from that. Like, you know, I don't want to say all of them, but you could say that more fear-based decisions have negative connotations towards those types of decisions that you're making. But when, when you make decisions out of love, you, you're more optimistic and hopeful, like we kind of see towards the end of this story. So yeah. I guess it's really interesting that we bring that up. Yeah, absolutely. Right? I think love is uh, one way maybe we could think about it is fear is one of the very few emotions that can contend with love in terms of its intensity and it's the way it can overwhelm a person or the way it can dominate all other emotions. That is pretty huge, I think. Of Fear is... Yeah, one of the few that can be so, so overwhelming like that comparatively. It can cripple yeah, you. absolutely. And we see that yeah. right at the beginning. And that's that's huge. Yeah. And then it just stays throughout the whole way. That's why Jurga's quote, you know, when he and Geralt are talking about, he, he's like, oh, well, every, you know, the land will be good as new and actually even better because of all the death, because it'll be more fertile. And then Geralt asks, are you afraid the Nilfgaardians, the black forces will return? They found a way through the mountains once already. Well, we're feared, and what of it? Do we sit down and weep and tremble? Life must go on, and what will be will be. What is destined can't be avoided in any case. So that's kind of like a really interesting contrast to Geralt, like constantly running away and not looking behind him. And and Yurga's almost like his perspective is almost to like plant himself down wherever and be like, if it comes, it comes. You know? Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. Just quick comment. Yeah. Just don't be don't be stupid about it, but <laughs> live your life, right? Yeah. Just the, it's it's very. Yeah. It's refreshingly simple and hard, very hard to argue with. You can't really, mm. I don't think. <laughs> You're just talking about his own intuition, right? He, I think he's kind of pointing the stick at Geralt like, hey, what's your intuition, man? Like, yeah, mm. he, he can he can sense in Geralt that he's unsure about his intuition, you know? And Mikhail makes such a great point. We see Geralt run away from these things. And there's so many times in like real life that where I've had a gut feeling and thought of something and then did the opposite and regretted not trusting my intuition. It's kind of, kind of feels like you're digging yourself a deeper hole. And I think I'm not, to, not to say that Gerald always does that. Cause he's a pretty resourceful person. He definitely does here. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like his, this whole idea that he's so responsible. Like he, he gives himself, it's almost arrogant. Maybe it is arrogant. Maybe I don't know about almost like he, he blames himself for so much, but on the other hand, if you want to argue the other side of it, if he's accepting that destiny is real, which, you know, he needs to do, then it's hard to say that it's not his fault, that all these deaths aren't his fault. So it's it's kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't on on the calculation there. And that's probably part of what makes it feel maybe so hopeless, which takes us back to why he was perhaps seeking a way out through uh, a last stand, uh, at least doing some small good on his way out, something like that. But you you mentioned one really cool thing in our private uh, conversation as well as he's Syria Pharrell thing, not today, yeah. right? And we can, right. So we obviously get that here, but can you explain what you told me to everyone? Yeah, it's like the opposite, right? He basically comes up to death and is like, "I'm ready." He's kind of saying, "I'm ready to die," but death says, "Not today." And it's 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 awesome. Like he is committing to this moment, and but death is like, "No, you have you have a, a purpose. You time. have a greater purpose. Yeah, you still have something to do." Like. It's acceptance, right? right? Yeah, that, among other things, makes it pretty hard for him to do anything other, right? He, he's just like the magical portents are pretty overwhelming at this point. If it's not all the coincidences, you literally have death saying, no, not today. Like, <laughs> it's, 
We definitely think it was death, but was it him imagining it? Did he fall asleep and then imagine all that? It's 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 definitely written that he falls asleep after, but I feel like it's open to interpretation because he just falls asleep at some point and maybe he imagined, dreamt that uh, and then dreamt that it was before. You know what I mean? Uh, I don't know. It just seems so strange that he would encounter <laughs> death. <laughs> I, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull out a Potter quote, oh, oh nice. which is. Uh, <laughs> When Dumbledore classically says to Harry, you know, of course, this this is in your head, but why does that mean it, it's not real? Mm. And I think that, you know, like, this is something that Geralt needed to hear, especially maybe in the figure of death, because what he hears from her is is the importance of companionship, mm. you know, because her, her message is ultimately like, it's a weird conversation. And she's kind of like, you know, I take people by the hand and that seems very scary and creepy and there's nothing beyond the mist and all that and nothing more beyond the mist and what she ends up saying is that all i do is i take people by the hand so they won't be alone Mm. that's i think coming from a figure that from a force that Geralt has attributed and really blamed for his loneliness for for a really long time i think that's really powerful uh and that is actually kind of a turning point in the story a little bit because it, it's the last, well, it's the last, oh, never mind. That's not true. He just, well, accept, I, he, well, I, I, mean, I mean, he accepts, right? That's part of it. He's like, he accepts that, right? And, that, and that's part of Geralt, too, that we got to consider. Like, he's kind of a lonely guy, you know what I mean? Like, he's got friends, but, you know, being a witcher is not easy. You're essentially treated as if you're a monster. And we know what happens to monsters. Yeah. So yeah. it's like it's such a difficult situation. I'm glad you brought that up, too, because it's a good segue, a good reason to bring up this great quote when he meets Dandelion, which is about how important he is to him. Like, yeah, like, you're, like you just yeah. said, he doesn't have many friends, but this is what he the way he treats this. This friend is another squishy moment. <laughs> Geralt, don't leave me here. I'll never survive by myself. Don't leave me. You must be insane, Dandelion, the witcher said, leaning over in the saddle. You must be insane with fear if you think I could leave you. Not even would leave you, could leave you. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> he's aw. not physically capable <laughs> of leaving him. Yeah. yeah. He's not going to let him get eaten by a giant centipede. <laughs> <laughs> or anything else, hopefully. Nothing, nothing's eating Dandelion <laughs> on his watch. If you had chosen, chosen correctly, you would see that the destiny you mock has been sneering at. So I, I interpreted this very simply just as that he's all this. He's, he keeps saying boy. Well, he keeps saying boy. And both Masak and Kalanthi are extremely elliptical. Like they do not say yeah. they say child. They, they say, say it. it. Yeah. They do not. <laughs> I love the it. They're like, it. <laughs> and he does not catch on. Yeah. But he never picks he up on it. He never picks up yeah, on it. It does not occur to him that it could be a girl. Not even for a second. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's neat. Also, shout out to Calanthe being like, pity I didn't meet you earlier. <laughs> oh, yeah. When he, when he presents the rose, like he's like. Everybody's hot for yeah, It's like The Bachelor, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. So moving on to a different plant, we're not to herb lore yet, but the trial of grasses is also kind of wrapped up in this conversation of the law of surprise, which is pretty cool because it's just another well done merging of, of ideas that we've seen. And uh, I, Geralt is pretty surprised at how much she knows. You will take one child, the one you choose, a child you will turn into a witcher, assuming the child survives the trial of the grasses, naturally. Geralt jerked up his head. The queen smiled. 
He knew that smile, hideous and evil, contemptuous because it did not conceal its artificiality. You are astonished, she stated. Well, I've studied a little. Since Pivetta's child has the chance of becoming a witcher, I went to great pains. He alludes to the fact that he he has oaths that prevent him from talking about these things. So how did she find out? That's part. I think that's part of his astonishment. And then he sort of talks yeah, about Yeah, then he just them. talks about it. I think, yeah, I think that's a, a recurring thing. He says he has oaths not to do things. And then just kind of later, he's like, I just made that up. They're my oaths. Like, I just feel that way. They're not, they didn't make me swear anything. It's just kind of how I am. <laughs> yeah. Is there a series that has the phrase hideous smile or smiled hideously more than <laughs> more than The Witcher? I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, that brought me right back to he has some line about like the variety of her smiles. And it's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Contemptuous because it did not conceal its artificiality. That is a great line. Yeah. <laughs> we also have uh, an interesting exchange. Yeah, this is really neat. Like she, first of all, she will set the stage briefly. She's trying to suss out all this stuff about being a witcher and she's trying to figure out like how it works. Like, okay, so if you have a child of destiny, then how does this go? Then, well, how does it slow? Why do you bother selecting them? Well, why are they, if they're a child of surprise, how come so many of them die? These are like really good, insightful questions. And it kind of leads to this exchange, I guess. Are all stories about the law of surprise myths? Yes, it's hard to call an accident destiny. But you witches do not stop searching. No, we don't, but it's senseless. Nothing has any point. Do you believe a child of destiny would pass through the trials without danger? We believe such a child would not require the trials. And of course, what he doesn't tell Calanthe, but we already know by now, is they can't do that. They don't have the ability to administer the trials anymore. So that's the only thing they have left. This is the old way isn't there. And that's kind of neat how it fits in with the life must go on theme. They can't make witchers the old way anymore. But does that mean that all there shouldn't be any sort of witcher knowledge? Shouldn't they pass down their, their ethos, their protective nature? Just, you know, sword fight. You can still learn a lot from a guy like Vesemir or a guy like Geralt, just training and learning. So that's there's still something there. There's still something more. <laughs> something more coming up again. Was that on purpose? I think so. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. It's got to, they got to adapt. Like witchers, you know, there's, why not a new breed of witcher to face the world? Like when witchers, witchers were invented to face a world that has no longer exists. It's a much different world now. We're going to have more witchers in the story, which is an exciting thing, right? I'm certainly super excited to see these interactions and these kind of, yeah, not these feelings pouring out between characters that we know have. <laughs> went through some pain to be with there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's also a really interesting thing that's, that's broached in this story. Like, especially a medieval world is full of risks and full of death. And like, you know, the last story, it was like, oh, they dropped their children who were dying of scarlet fever and whatever, uh, smallpox off in Brokilon. And like, Cal both Calanthe and Yurga point out that like, a lot of trades are dangerous. And like, a lot of things kill people, you know, that aren't just witcher training. But I don't, I, and I don't think that that balance is ever really struck because I don't think there is a balance you can strike there. Like, so like, I don't know that that's a reason to necessarily subject children to horrible things that kills three or, you know, seven out of 10 of them or whatever. But I think it, it ties back both into that fear and death concept that we were talking about earlier. Mm, yeah, well said. Good point. It's important to note that this point that it's seems to be a thing of the past. It really frames the life of these existing witchers. It's something that separates them from this new world is that they'll never be anything like them. But 
it also is something that bonds them a bit. Like they went through it together. There's very few of them that we just see. What does he say? Four out of 10. And then there's the additional, there's the selection, the trial, the glasses and the changes, which all these things are vague, but the selection obviously is picking them in the first place. The trial of grasses is giving them potions and stuff and then other, other stuff. And then the changes, I guess that's the more related to like his eyes. He talks about that as a separate process. So yeah, like you just said, McCall, like, is it really worth killing all those kids? Probably not given the, it, it arguably wasn't back then, but there's a stronger case to be made when the world was overrun by monsters. But now when the world is only just has some monsters, <laughs> it's like, it's a lot harder to make the case that you need to create child super soldiers, semi-immortal child super soldiers. I particularly love Esco and Lambert other than Besigner as well. So it'll be so, in- they're really interesting characters. They have really interesting insights on the world. Their worldview is as interesting as Carol's. We just don't get much. Yeah. And I actually, can I go on a tiny, tiny rant about fantasy writing here? Please do. I, I know these things are explained somewhat more, at least in the game. But I don't think in the books we get like too much detail about what the trial of the grasses is and, and all that stuff, right? Mm-mm. And I think this is something that people really overlook when it comes to fantasy writing. Like, you don't need to answer all these questions. Mm-hmm. There is something so evocative about the trial of the grasses. What the fuck is that? <laughs> Yeah. You know, and that's part of what makes it magical. And like, there are any aspiring fantasy writers out there? Like, you don't have to explain everything. It doesn't all have to be lore. It's you know, I mean, it can be lore, but it can be a mystery. Like, mysteries are important in fantasy, and and making things sound cool and letting people come to their own conclusions is is an important skill as a writer. Yeah, you're you're so right. <laughs> Ryan Byrne says it seems weed related. <laughs> Then both Mutasees would have loved the Trial of the Grasses. Uh, the Trial of the Grasses takes place only at 420 on 420. Well, Calanthe does say that they're stuffed with narcotics. Yeah. So. First, there is the choosing. You have to pick the <laughs> to go to the store and get your snacks. <laughs> okay. Um, also, Macrophage is also asking about the creatures that attacked Yorga and Geralt's. Yeah. And my personal interpretation, again, this is my English major life talking, but I think it's actually really important that they aren't identified because they are just basically mm. like a violent swarm that come out of death, you know, and that are they're attributed directly to the war. Um, and I think that's kind of like, it's really interesting to lead into the main series where we have kind of much fewer creatures and much more of the the real evil is is war and violence and Obviously, not all Nilf- not not all Nilf- Nilfgaardians, but like the force of Nilfgaard and what it represents is, to me, kind of very nicely summed up in the visual of this incredible, violent, unstoppable swarm that's coming at nightfall, and you can't do anything about it. It's like it adds more aftermath to the mm-hmm. aftermath of war. Like, oh, also undead creatures could come. <laughs> And you may, and they may be some entirely new form of undead creature because that's just how these things work. <laughs> it's like it's like Nilfgaard is death, sorcerers and sorceresses are death. We have monsters are death, and then we have animals. Like there's so much, you know what I mean? It's like kind of a lot. Well, there's a lot of cheating of death in this yeah. world, like. All those things you just named pretty much are sub- not supposed to be around. Like witchers aren't supposed to, people aren't supposed to live 90 years after they're already old. Things aren't supposed to come back to life and attack you. Like, yeah, these are. <laughs> yeah, what? I don't like that. <laughs> I hope that never happens to anyone. Oh, yeah. <laughs> never know what the five, the five, the five G shots. <laughs> Sorry, I had to. <laughs> 
Yeah, when Geralt takes the black call, he says, I'll thrash around and rave as though dead. It's nothing. Don't be afraid. Or don't be afeared, rather. Don't be afeared. It's an important distinction between afraid and afeared. Um, I don't know what that distinction is, but I'm sure it's important. We, we do learn a bit later, not a spoiler because it's not a plot point at all. Black Seagull, a.k.a. Black Gull, is somewhat magical. It has a magical element to it. And there's a white Seagull, which we'll see pretty early in the next book. Again, not exactly a plot point, but it, it helps frame this moment. So that's why I want to highlight it. So you, you have some reference when you get to it, if you haven't already. That's the milder, non-magical, but also has, but all na- but still natural and does have a mild hallucinogenic property too as well. Vicenna says it doesn't help with healing. He doesn't argue. He doesn't, I think he, maybe he knows that. Is that kind of where we fall? We've, we've kind of discussed this already, but I wanted to make sure that we put a bow on that, on that yeah. concept. That's not why I'm doing it, mom. <laughs> <laughs> it is really funny. Do you think maybe that's what he was doing? He was just trolling. He's like having his the mom tell the <laughs> son not to do drugs. And that's then we funny. have this funny quote here. Yeah. The, the, it's nothing. Don't be a feared. I'll thrash around and <laughs> rave as though dead. <laughs> it's funny. The word fear is in there. Rab is dead. Yennefer and Geralt go off to a juniper bush. Now we've we've talked about juniper before. It was in the first story. It's about protection and cleansing. So that's there's a little bit of meaning there. But for the full description, you have to go back to the first episode. Juniper is also brought up as like a covering for the flavoring. There's only two particularly new herb lore bits beyond the black gull, which is obviously not uh, real. So juniper actually comes up twice here, and it's to mask flavor or to mask the ingredients of an elixir. And that's what Geralt notices as he's drinking what Vicenna gives him. And he tastes burdock. And burdock is uh, well known in the world. It's traditional Chinese medicine. It's known to be a blood purifier, which is exactly what Geralt thinks of it. It's to, to get the toxins out. In America, like I think some native traditions use simmered burdock to counter rattlesnake venom. And it led, burdock led to the invention of Velcro. How random, right? The way burdock seeds attach to things are basically little, a bunch of little tiny interlocking hooks. And some person whose name I forgot to write down uh, noticed this and decided this would be a good way to build a product. And that's how we got Velcro. So the Serbo-Croatian word for burdock is the same word for Velcro. And in Polish, the word burr and Velcro are the same. So that's pretty cool. Now, here's a particularly weird thing. Since the Middle Ages... People have consumed a beverage called dandelion and burdock, and it's now a soft drink popular in the UK. I would say who knew, but clearly people in the UK do, if not <laughs> their neighbors. So, uh, But I certainly had never heard of dandelion and burdock, the drink. Have you guys? No, no. I just mainly mainly heard it was like used to treat infections or like, <laughs> like serious ailments. Yeah. Finally, one little moment. I think maybe this... Yeah, this maybe we're something here. There's a scent of wild cherry blossoms when Geralt and Calanthe are laughing about their shot in the dark exchange. Cherry blossoms are a, a kind of a paradoxical symbol because in one hand, they symbolize the fleeting uh, of life, how life is brief and, you know, capturing the best moments of it are uh, are difficult and things like that. Concepts related to the, the notion of, of life being short and the best moments of life being fleeting. But also, cherry blossoms are associated with immortality. So that's 
kind of the exact opposite. Um, but also this is this and this comes amidst the end of this scene. Don't forget, Calanthe says, I have this thought that we'll never see each other again. And that I feel like that is uh, connecting to this concept of life being fleeting and these special moments being special because you get very few of them. And we just talked in the beginning about how Calanthe and Geralt's dialogue is a very special thing. We don't get enough of it, but it's great. <laughs> in um, Chinese tradition, it's also seen, um, I spoke about transition earlier. It's a symbol of transition as well but also oh. is considered a symbol of love so pretty interesting mm. i think it's um well, we've had a discussion about fear and love being kind of you know the two main emotion-based decisions that we make all of them all of our kind of feelings spawn from those two main emotions yeah right on and that's gonna do it for today's podcast i just want to i just want to give my funny moment Oh, so, okay. <laughs> oh, you had your funny moment. That's right. Uh, yeah. guys. This what is, is it? This is actually something I've been meaning to say for a couple of episodes, but I completely forgot every time. Whenever, like, the first time, even if they've been together in the story, when whenever Dandelion is calling to Geralt, the way it's written is, Geralt! <laughs> With, like, a million A's. <laughs> and I just find it so funny that that's in there. It's so evocative of just like his voice and his mannerisms and like everything about Dandelion and the fact that Harold puts up with it despite that, I, I think is excellent. Good catch. Yeah, because I think you're right. It's written this, uh, almost the same way yeah. every time. So it's like it just makes it more unique. Can you, you can really hear it. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> I do think Gerald has a couple of funny moments. Like there's always moments of sarcasm that are funny. Not like outright like silly slapstick yeah. humor or more satirical humor that we often get with you know these uh, these short stories but none but nonetheless yeah, totally. i think that it was i don't want to say it was a nice change of pace but it really it, this story hits nice it hits different right because you know it's comforting we, it is comforting and you know, we've been talking privately nothing against the short stories but i think we're all excited to get the the main story and yeah definitely yeah. And we'll have a drink of dandelion and burdock with it. By the way, Jessica Fluffykin says, I love it. Tastes good. So we do have one person that likes dandelion and burdock. I'm not sure how fast I'll be trying that, but you never. never He says it tastes like dandelion and burdock. That's not helpful. (laughs) Yeah. A sweet, earthy taste. Yeah. Okay. I have no idea what burdock or dandelion tastes like. Yeah. So. So yeah, everyone, this has been a super fun podcast. Finished all the short stories. It's been so fun. And as you can see, I think we're all kind of addicted to talking about it. It's kind of a problem. (laughs) Yeah, we're getting more and more into a groove here. and We got so much more to go. And yes, thanks to Mara, Ryan, Sam, James, Elsie, Amy, Barry, and Robert. You guys rock. We are much appreciative of your uh, contributions, and we will put it to good use getting more episodes out. Of course, if you do want to support the podcast, you can hit the join button here on the channel or you can go on Anchor, which is very easy. You go to support, you press the support button, one, five, or $10 are the options. Of course, you don't have to, but if you do want to help the podcast, like we said, we have enough support now that we've got uh, a sound editor. So that's, uh, that's pretty cool. Check us out on Facebook, Podcast of Surprise. Come join us there. We do all of our updates on there or you can follow any one of us on social media and we kind of usually do our updates. Yeah, we've got some interesting things coming up, guys. Get excited for some new episodes. A lot of cool Witcher things are coming on today. 
Thank you so much for joining us and have a great one. See you in the next episode. Bye. Bye. Bye.